Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rabello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House in London and also from around the world. Coming up, the latest on the war between Israel and Hamas. Then the UK hosts the first major global summit on artificial intelligence. It's not one specific thing where you can say, okay, you know, we need to deal with this, but it's more like, you know, electricity or digitization, you know, using computers for everything. So it really enables a range of different capabilities in in loads of different areas, right? I mean, it goes from healthcare to warfare. We'll also speak with U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski about security and Russia, meet the Japanese photographer Hiroshi Sugimoto and sit down with the president of Emirates, Sir Tim Clark. The way this is going at the moment, the way I see the government's hand on the tiller, next 20 or 30 years, you ain't seen nothing yet. Plus, hip-hop's influence in cities, and we join the rehearsals of a non-binary choir in Austria. All that and much more over the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Carlotta Rabello. So welcome to The Curator. The escalation of the war between Israel and Hamas continued to dominate headlines this week. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissed calls for him to resign over security failures in the October 7th Hamas attack and ruled out a ceasefire with the militant group as the army intensifies ground operations in Gaza. To get the latest, Monaco's Georgina Godwin was joined from Jerusalem by Shana Lowe, who's a communication advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council, and by Nick Gowing, a distinguished fellow at Royal United Services Institute and a former international presenter at BBC World News. Let's have a listen. More problematic is that long, long table with 225 seats outside the defense ministry and the haunting political pressure now on Netanyahu, who clearly is not getting on well with his military leaders. Um, The expectation that he will get those hostages back, I think the chances of that are quite slim, not least because you've got to find them, first of all. But that political message being sent by those empty Shabbat chairs is extraordinary. And already the signs are very strong. Uh, there's a major general um, in the a former major general um, in the in the IDF quoted this morning in the Times saying that, um, and I don't know where, whether this data is absolutely spot on, but he says 80% of the public in Israel want Netanyahu to go. Now, to be in the middle of a war and the prime minister being under pressure to go um, is really not a good position to be in because it shows uh, a fraying of leadership and um, and self-confidence right at the top. Absolutely. Uh, Shana, back to what's going on in Gaza. We know that there was a raid on an aid centre by desperate people there over the weekend. What are the challenges for your colleagues of, of being an aid worker as, as social order really begins to collapse? Well, you know, for our staff, We've largely, our operations have basically been suspended in Gaza since uh, October 7th, simply because it's not safe for our staff to go out and move. And they need to spend the most of their time just making sure that they and their families are okay and that basic necessities are provided for. But what we're seeing, and, and the UN for, for days had been talking about how they had these warehouses in Gaza, but they were inaccessible because it simply wasn't safe for their staff to reach them. And and so this is why we need a ceasefire or at the very least a humanitarian pause so that humanitarians can go and safely distribute aid. It's one thing um, to to have the supplies in Gaza, either they're already pre-positioned or or coming in through Rafah, 
but it's another thing for humanitarians to be able to to um, distribute them. And I think what we saw over the weekend with Palestinians going and, and taking uh, supplies from, from UN warehouses, it just shows the level of desperation, the level of panic, the level of chaos that Palestinians in Gaza are feeling um, when when there's no sign of relief coming in, they're they're being forced to take matters into their own hands when when they feel that this is a matter of survival. And Nick, of course, we know that there's a huge public health crisis. Israel's ordered the evacuation of hospitals in Gaza. Is that because the IDF feels that these buildings might be where some of the Hamas command centers are located? Well, they claim it's not might. It it, it is where the command centers are. And they've certainly uh, produced a, a graphic. Uh, they said they weren't prepared to uh, show the the uh, video of uh, what they've got uh, underneath one of the main hospitals saying this is a command center. And Hamas have done that specifically, including uh, storing up to half a million liters of fuel as well. So um, the Israelis are very specific about what they say, and they have ordered the evacuation uh, of that hospital. But can I just add something else, if I may, Georgina? You know, I was in Saudi Arabia last week, um, and I think we have to look at this more broadly about how delicately balanced this is at the moment between the uncertainty of what Hezbollah are going to do in Lebanon and on the northern border uh, and also the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's a very complex matrix that I'm referring to here. But this could be controlled at the moment. There is a, a, a moment coming up where it'll be uncontrollable. And of course, the Israeli defense forces will be extraordinarily um, stretched if they have to open another front in the north. They've called up 360,000 reservists, but um, that doesn't mean to say that they've got enough military hardware and military capability to actually see off a second, uh, a second assault from the north. It is incredibly delicately balanced at the moment, and I think it's noteworthy that Lord Peter Ricketts, former National Security Advisor, and Sir John Soares, the former head of MI6, have both um, penned articles in which they say you cannot achieve what Netanyahu says he wants to achieve um, by military action alone. We've seen that in Afghanistan. We've seen that in Iraq. It's militarily and politically unsustainable, even if that's what you want to do at the early stages of anger. Mm. How could it be controlled at the moment? I mean, what are they suggesting? What is the alternative? Well, there's a lot of diplomacy going on. But I was very struck when I was in Saudi Arabia. The um, Iranian foreign minister actually met the Saudi foreign minister in Jeddah. Now, uh, a, a few months ago, Iran and Saudi Arabia were still at war. Now, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the uh, effective leader, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia, uh, and they were about to build a new relationship with, with Israel about respecting uh, diplomatic relations, building diplomatic relations. All that's now on the back burner, obviously. But there's a lot of influence being being uh, exerted among different f factions and different power plays uh, about uh, trying to re re um, restrain those who have the military capability, particularly Hezbollah, supplied by Iran to stop them or to restrain them coming in from Lebanon. And so you've got a lot of activity. And I remember, I said this actually when I last spoke to you, that the, is, the Egyptians are uh, desperately paranoid about the number of refugees which may be threatening their country. They've already got 7 million refugees from different conflicts around the region. And what we're talking about here is the ability now to destabilize much more than just Gaza. 100,000 Israelis have moved from their homes in the north of the country, you know, and this is going to affect the Israeli economy as well. So much, there's a, there's a whole sort of falling cascade 
of issues which are now becoming really unraveled, quite apart from the horror which we've been hearing about of the uh, humanitarian side in Gaza. Frozen, vast and remote, the Arctic has long been a region of relative peace and stability. But the idea of Arctic exceptionalism is on thin ice, largely due to Russia's war in Ukraine. This change in mood was palpable at the recent Arctic Circle Assembly held last month in Reykjavik. Monaco's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team travelled to the Icelandic capital to meet with various leaders, including US Senator for Alaska Lisa Murkowski, who's been calling for greater military preparedness in the region. Andrew began by asking Senator Murkowski if hailing from and representing Alaska has given her a different viewpoint of Russia to the rest of the United States. They are our neighbors. So many in even the rest of the United States have no appreciation of how proximate our neighbors are. From mainland to mainland, it's 57 miles. It is two miles between Little Diomede, Alaska, and Big Diomede, Russia. Two miles. And so I know that there's an oft-repeated phrase out there that I can see Russia from my house. Well, (laughs) Honestly, if you live in Little Diomede, you can, in fact, see Russia from your home. And so think about what that proximity means. It means that you have Alaskans who not only view those across the strait as their neighbors, but their family members. Mm -hmm. There was a period in time not too many years ago when we actually had what we called freedom flights. They were flights that were regularly regularly, like once a week, going from Nome, Alaska, over into Providenia, to Magadan. These were an effort to reconnect families, to allow for that neighbor-to-neighbor relation culturally, a great deal of commonality in dance and tradition. And so when we think about it as Alaskans and the neighbor to the West there, it is not so far off. We have many Russian communities where families have come over and established themselves in communities that are somewhat insular with Mm. Russian families, but there is a lot of connection. And so when war presents, when that wall really does rise in between our two countries, it takes on a different complexion in the state of Alaska than it might in other areas. I assume when you said it, you weren't talking about Alaska specifically, because this would be pretty hardcore revanchism, even by Vladimir Putin's standards. But you did say a while back that you were concerned that Vladimir Putin had, as you put it, one hand on Ukraine and the other on the Arctic. Do you think we're not taking seriously enough the possibility of actual Russian predations upon the Arctic? Oh, I believe very much that Putin would like to see much greater Russian dominance in the Arctic. Mm. Now, geographically, they occupy a big space up there. We get that. But I think what he is seeking to do is to broaden that beyond that mass of geography that he has. It's dominance in the waters. It is establishing a presence, a defense presence, an economic presence that says to the world... The Arctic is our domain. So, yes, I think very much that he looks at this and has greater ambitions 
than perhaps most in the United States would think that he does. And I think that we should view that with some concern. Obviously, partially as a consequence of Russia's assault upon Ukraine, the Arctic Circle has become much more, well, NATO-fied, I guess. Finland has joined, Sweden presumably will. Do you think that the Arctic also needs to become much more obviously militarised? I know your, your Arctic Commitment Act, which you sponsor, does call for a permanent US maritime presence in the Arctic. Do you mean specifically a US naval presence in the Arctic? Well, think about how much water we have in the US Arctic. That is pretty open. We have a wonderful Coast Guard. We appreciate all the assets, but in fairness, our coverage is very limited. And we have effectively no naval presence in the U.S. Arctic waters. We have no naval presence in Alaska. And it is something that we have pressed the Navy to review, to look at that specifically. We've done that through appropriations language. We've done it through private conversations. And so when I think about our Arctic capabilities, we have to look to that first line of defense, and that's in Alaska. And so whether it is air superiority, whether it is our preparedness from a surveillance capacity with drones, but clearly with assets that help to cover our oceans around Alaska. We have the Arctic Ocean, we have the Bering Sea, we have the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Alaska there. We have a lot of territory with very little presence right now. Would you imagine, though, that there might be some pushback against that? I mean, obviously, Russia would say that this is the United States deliberately escalating tensions, but that's what Russia says about everything. But are you worried that there would be a similar kind of pushback from your own allies and partners in the Arctic who have prided themselves for years on this being a very, very low-stress, low-tension neighborhood? And we want to keep it low-stress, low-tension neighborhood. And I think the way that we can project and ensure that is to make sure that there's just a level of preparedness. Russia is doing far more to invest in their defense capabilities in the Arctic. And they're doing this at a time when they're looking for every bit of a funding that they can to advance this awful war against Ukraine. But they are still trying to put their influence, well, it is their influence in their own region, but they're still trying to build up and enhance that military capacity. And think about this then. If you don't have the ability to make those investments yourselves, who might you turn to? And this is where we see them turning to China. And this is where we should all be concerned about this growing partnership in the Arctic between Russia and China. Russia has made very, very clear, we want to be the Arctic dominant country up here because of our geography and and our history. We want to and we shall be. And this is one area where historically we haven't seen a lot of partnering between Russia and China. That's flipped. We're seeing them do exercises in the Gulf of Alaska, near Alaskan waters, the Russians and the Chinese together. You're hearing statements coming from Putin about the cooperation with the Russian Coast Guard and the Chinese Coast Guard. I think they're looking to China for a little help with investment capital. How are they going to make sure that they have the strength and the capability to build and to then 
maintain some of this very, very, very expensive infrastructure in the far north? Well, you do it with different partners. Who are their partners? China. Do you have the sense that the Biden administration is starting to take this stuff more seriously? I mean, I know there has been quite the stampede to Alaska in recent months of various Biden administration officials, but does that represent them taking the Arctic more seriously or does that represent them thinking that you're a Republican they can actually do business with? Well, I'd like to think it's because for 20 years I have been pounding all administrations, whether it's Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush, to recognize the Arctic, to recognize that the United States is an Arctic nation. And there are challenges that we need to rise to, and there's extraordinary opportunities. So let's get in the game. But in fairness, part of it is the geopolitical tension that we are seeing right now. And that brings attention. I noted to somebody yesterday that we've worked so hard to ensure that the Arctic is this zone of peace. But when a place is quiet, nobody pays any attention to it and nobody gets any resources to it. And then everybody pays attention when it's not quiet. And then when there's a problem, when there's a hot spot now. So now there's more attention. You'll probably recall that it wasn't too many months ago when the Chinese balloon was moving its way across Alaska and then over Canada and then into the United States, and everyone in the world was watching it. And it really kind of put Alaska on the map for many people in the country who said, wow, I didn't really think about Alaska as being the front lines of defense here coming across from China. And was like, well, are you not looking at a map? But in fairness, most people don't look at the map the way that we do. I've got a great map in my bag here that is the polar view. Mm -hmm. And the polar view really puts it in context, folks. It is something that we need to start looking at instead of the map on the wall that shows Alaska in a tiny little box down here next to Mexico. So we've got to look at the world a little bit differently. And the Arctic holds a very, very significant place in that map. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Robello. This week also saw the first major global summit on artificial intelligence take place in the United Kingdom. Ulrike Franke is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and she joined Georgina Godwin with more. I think what everyone agrees is that AI, artificial intelligence, is the technology or the technologies of the future and that it really is monumentally important to talk about it. Whether this summit um, is going to be the most important summit ever, um, I mean, I have my doubts, but that's the kind of grandiose uh, rhetoric governments usually use. Nevertheless, I think what's important is that really quite influential people are at Bletchley, are coming together. So it is both uh, the private sector and many governments, including, by the way, governments that don't agree on much, you know, outside of this topic. So, you know, the US, China, etc. So I think it is an important step. But in the end, we don't expect any real decisions to come out of this. It is more about coming together and kind of seeing whether or not we are on the same page and and how to proceed on that. Mm. You made the distinction there between the plural and the singular. Are there many different kinds of AI? 
Well, there are different kinds of AI. I mean, honestly, this is a topic that for, for the layman or laywoman is, is pretty difficult to understand because it really is technologically complex. But the reason I use the, the plural on technologies is also that there are many ways of using AI. So it is not a single-use technology. It is not one new system, one new capability, but rather something that can enable and make more efficient and change existing technologies, so legacy systems, etc. And that makes it so difficult to talk about it because it's not one specific thing where you can say, okay, you know, we need to deal with this, but it's more like, you know, electricity or digitization, you know, using computers for everything. Um, so, so it really enables a range of different capabilities in, in loads of different areas, right? I mean, it goes from healthcare to warfare. Mm. Uh, so what are the aims of this summit? Um, I think at this point, the aims are bring together important stakeholders, both from the public and the private world, bring together international stakeholders, as I was saying, even from countries that don't necessarily work well together, have a conversation on these issues, don't necessarily take a decision yet, but still. And quite honestly, there is a UK political background here as well in, in that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak also wants to kind of position himself and position the country as a leading force in the in the debate on AI, in the regulation of AI, it wants to show that it, it can bring something to the table here, even though the UK, you know, is a, you know, comparatively small country, at least compared to the US and, and China and not, you know, the leading con a country um, on these issues. But I think he wants to position the UK in a way that, that shows that, yeah, it can bring something to the table, even between a regulation, maybe not regulation race, but a regulation competition between the US, the EU and China. Mm. Um, and I wonder if there are any no-go areas and how the meeting will be structured. So the way I understand it and from what we've seen from the initial declara declaration is that the focus is on AI safety, AI security. They're looking at risks primarily. I mean, everyone, of course, of course acknowledges the opportunities, but that's relatively well covered. So they're looking at, at risks and they're looking more at longer term risks. So not necessarily the very kind of existential AI will destroy the world kind of things, which is also an area of the study, but still, you know, AI risks such as nefarious uses of AI, um, the use to uh, the use of AI to create biological weapons or use it in cyber attacks or, uh, you know, for disinformation, things like that. And they want to they want to talk about this. They seem to not look at the very immediate issues such as biases, you know, things that are relevant right now. And this is something that has been discussed. But overall, I think the debate will be relatively wide ranging and they may still be shaped. So the aims and the, the kind of focuses of the, the summit may still be changed uh, and shaped by the participants. Mm. But in terms of a concrete, uh, achievable, uh, I mean, are we, are, are we going to see something real come out of this, like a set of regulations, for instance? No, I don't think so. And I think there would be too much to ask. So, so yes, one could say, okay, this is just a talking shop. But honestly, talking shops are very important. And also, they're always the first step to get to something more concrete. So they're not going to agree on a kind of regulation that goes in any kind of nitty gritty. First of all, also, because these aren't the people that can do this anyway. So the regulation will come out of, of national well, governments and regulatory bodies and of international regulatory bodies. Of course, the European Union has been kind of the first to take this on with the with the EU AI Act. So they are, you know, in the midst of, of discussing loads of, and many regulation. 
the U.S. has in fact just, so the White House has just published an executive um, uh, order uh, that that also kind of starts taking this on. I mean, some people say, you know, the U.S. is kind of scooped or taken away the limelight from the UK on the summit. I don't quite agree with this, but they are also on this. So regulation will more happen in, yeah, on the national level and then in international uh, regulatory bodies rather than through a, I, I almost want to say informal meeting like like this. Um, but but nevertheless, I don't want to talk this down. I think this is really important for the, the governments and yeah, the, the, the stakeholders here to come together and, and just kind of talk about what these regulations should look at, um, uh, where exactly they should focus on, what is possible, what is what are no-go areas. Yeah. Now, Emirates Airline is a global aviation giant and a symbol of soft power for the UAE. Its vast network, industry-leading products and award-winning service make makes Emirates a powerful ambassador, connecting the nation to the world. Monocle's Ed Stalker caught up with the president of the airline, Sir Tim Clark, while in Dubai. Ed began by asking Sir Tim how he considers their role in contributing to the UAE nation-building and what being the country's flag carrier means in practice. We weren't charged with that task in the early days. Because we became so successful and partly built on the back of the success of Dubai, don't forget, we realised that there was a crossover between what we were doing and how we were perceived and how Dubai was perceived. So we're very proud of that, but it hasn't been something that we've aspired to do. We haven't been directed by the state to use soft power. To We've just done it because we're good at what we do. Dubai is good at what it does. And taken together, the two have put Dubai on the map. And hopefully that'll continue as we get better in all the things that we're going to do. How much do you think Dubai's growth, which you just mentioned, is down to having Emirates Airlines? Because obviously it's been such a business connector. It's connected this region to the world, both east and west, in many ways. Well, I think it's enabled the aspirations of the government. And believe me, I was, I've been here a long time now. and I could see how the government could see what it wanted to do. It needed to assemble the tools of the, the model that it was going to need to get things done. And the aerospace airline community, the airport aviation, was was critical to that. It's a fundamental pillar, bearing in mind the difficulties of getting to Dubai through other modes. So to make this all work, which is why His Highness the Ruler established the airline in the first place. He did a lot of other things, don't get me wrong, but taken together with all of this, it was it's a huge success story. I, I, I look back and I look at the Singapores of the world, the Hong Kongs of the world, and how they all grew, and I see Dubai actually outperforming in many areas better than they did. Because, again, the government was focused. The airline was a critical part. The airlines and the aerospace community, that includes the airports, the ability of the government to understand the criticality of all of this and invest in, as they have done, the airports and airfields here and make sure that the the airline, they, they really don't get involved in what we do. They are hugely supportive. They're very impressed, I think, with what we have done and they want to see more of the same going forward. So that's very much part of the magic of Dubai, quite honestly. I don't think in the early days they ever envisaged a carrier being as big as we are today, but or as successful as it has been. And that has, of course, helped brand Dubai, no, no question about it. But let's not put it all down to that. You know, if you didn't have a government that was determined to do that, you would, this wouldn't have happened at all. If His Highness the Ruler hadn't set up the airline in the first place, well, where would we be now? 
So in the end, you've got a government knows what it's doing, knows where it's going, what it wants to do. You talked about all the other bits and pieces like technology and AI. There are lots of other things they're, they're trying to, to excel in, not just to be the leader, because they actually think that during the course of the next 20, 30 years, it'll enhance what Dubai will become. And so far, so good. What do you make of people who say it's, you have an unfair advantage because you have this government largesse, you know, you have this government backer? Obviously, I know all these headlines about subsidies disproved, etc. But some people say, look, workers aren't unionized or Dubai airports open essentially all the time. So you have these things, which I guess, to a certain extent, in your advantage. What do you say to that? Well, I, I, I would say, look... Everybody has an opportunity. If you want to take it, if you want to harness all the bits and pieces that come as part of that opportunity, take it. We are not subsidised by the government. The government is hugely supportive of what we do. They don't give us any money at all, apart from when we were in dire straits during the COVID period, when they stepped up immediately and did what they did. But they rely on us to get the job done. And like multiple other facets of, of the Dubai economy, and to the extent the UAE, each entity is required to do the right thing and get it done. So yes, if we are in a very nice position where we don't have a curfew, we have a 24-7 operation, and people say, well, that's not fair. Well, I'm really sorry for you, but that's the way it is. If we have a government that is hugely involved in what we do in the sense that they understand the criticality of aerospace to the and they want to nurture that whether it be through airfields technology etc and support what we're doing what's wrong with that we would say to your governments go and do the same and so it goes on and here is a model of how an integrated economy in the private and the state sector actually work together and generate enormous amounts of wealth but with a, a government that keeps very close eye on the things but doesn't interdict and then things go badly wrong as you know we, we face in the in the pandemic but the way this is going at the moment the way i see the government's hand on the tiller next 20 or 30 years you ain't seen nothing yet ubs has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. I'm Carlotta Rebello. Hip-hop has united musicians, dancers and artists for decades, but it has also been a vehicle for economic development and community support. Shane Shapiro is a regular guest on The Urbanist, speaking about music and its importance to all aspects of cities. He joined Andrew Tuck to talk about the importance of hip-hop as the cultural movement marked 50 years this August. I wrote an article about how we need to reimagine hip-hop as local economic development. And let's break it down to what is local economic development? What literally is it? And it's a series of policies and investments and strategies and, and things that organizations do to either give money, time, space, or encouragement to people to create businesses. And often these systems are in place, ignore a lot of the cultural capital that can then be used to create more cultural capital in communities. And the world's most popular genre is hip-hop, the genre that is in literally, and I say the word literally, literally, every community in the world is hip-hop. And it's also the... You know, it has a kind of low barrier to entry because you don't need 
a huge amount of training and skill to just start at the very, very, very low level. It's like being in a choir. And so I believe if we harness that value and we translate it and we say, okay, well, how can the mechanisms and the structure of hip hop, which have manifested into global superstars, have manifested into changing popular culture in and of itself, how can we use that as a tool to invest in our communities? Because we're not really. And that's not frustration. That's me coming, saying this is an incredible opportunity that we have in all our communities. When you're at heaven's gates, we telling the Lord? You wouldn't even let a kid into some steadier shores. That's a life they may never afford. Surely you would want to give your people chances that were better than yours, no? In your, your article, you point out that there have been some barriers for some of these entrepreneurs in the sense that often mainstream media or some civic leaders worry that you know, hip-hop is connected with violence, with the street is, is a bit too edgy for them to be involved in. And you point out that this is you know, no more true than in, for any other kind of genre of music. Do you think this has been an issue for holding back some of the potential here? Very much so. Systemic and structural racism is one of the key issues, whether it's implicit or explicit. The way that music and culture has been invested in really over the last, what, three or four hundred years, starting with patronage of royal families giving Mozart money to make a symphony. It's things change very slowly and certain people with certain tastes have made the decisions over a long period of time. And sometimes when you don't understand a genre of music or you don't listen to a genre of music, you don't see the inherent social and cultural value. It's just an expression of a human being's lived experience. Because it's interesting, I, you know, well, I, I was trying to think of other US examples and you know that some of the, the country music stars have reputations for giving to good causes and supporting communities you know, in the South. But there, they're lauded always for what they do. And maybe there, do you think that's, there's something about hip hop that, first of all, people question it more than, for example, another genre of music? Yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat it. The way that we invest in our cities and places in the United States and Canada and the UK, continental Europe tend to be made historically by people who, who may be new to hip-hop or may not understand hip-hop. Hip-hop's also a new genre. It's only been around for 50 years. This year was its 50-year anniversary. And it's a lot newer and a lot less understood, you know, than a lot of other genres. But it frankly comes down to allocation of resources. And, you know, cities in America have been built and designed through systemic and structural racist policies, you know? And I, I just, I want to flip it on its head and, and treat this as an opportunity, right? It may not be understood simply because it hasn't been explained in that way. From the backwoods when Nina Woods Think about the life we should lead A new dawn, another deed I tried to do some good I felt more damn than Mississippi was They denied Nina in Philadelphia And still we persevered like all the 400 So give us a few from the hip-hop rulebook for urban development. One or two of the things you would take for a hip-hop urbanism rulebook. First is never assume. So we all assume things. We all come at things with our own unintentional biases. And... Assuming the type of culture that would make sense for a community's redevelopment tends not to work. It needs to be based on data and evidence. The second is space doesn't need to be complicated. Space doesn't need to be expensive, especially when it comes to hip-hop and, and related culture, spoken word, breakbeat, dance, that kind of stuff. It's making space available to communities, even if it's you know in a basement or it's in an area with less footfall can have significant additional benefits and measuring things as well. So not just doing something because you think it's the right thing to do, but putting in a structure that you can measure the economic and social impact of what you're doing. 
so you can tweak stuff. I think, like anything, if we care about something, then we put time and effort into understanding it. But the examples of the value that hip-hop brings to our communities are everywhere. They're our world's biggest stars right now. And Britain is really, really good at it. It just, we tend not to put two and two together, where we, A, see the genre as an economy in and of itself, and then see that if we're going to sustain and grow that economy, then that economy needs infrastructure, policy, investments, and understanding. Now, as well as consulting and as giving advice to all sorts of institutions, you've managed to somehow turn out a book as well, which is called This Must Be The Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better. And it's just coming out now. You're doing a book tour. Just tell us before we we wrap up today, what's the, the thrust of the book and what's the ambition of the book? Yeah, well, the book really just outlines how music improves and impacts our communities and how we, if we think about music more as infrastructure, so we think about building it into planning policy and building it into the decisions that we take to invest in our communities, then it has wide-ranging benefits economically, socially, and culturally. The book really is 10 years of working. I've worked in about 130 cities around the world in 30-plus countries, helping them, what I hope, understand the value of music mainly to produce economic data to explain how it works and how it all fits together. So the book tells the story of the mistakes that I've made, but also what I've learned, and provides a blueprint for any community, regardless of size, regardless of where they are, based on what I've seen work around the world, to begin to understand how music can improve their economic, social, and cultural policies. The bill collectors that ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double digit inflation, can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Neon King Kong standing on my back. The Japanese photographer Hiroshi Sugimoto is famed for mixing wit and commentary with exquisitely tuned craftsmanship and bold conceptual thinking. The artist is the subject of a new exhibition at London's Hayward Gallery, and a new survey show encompasses 50 years of photographs and two sculptures, all of which seem to do unfamiliar things with the familiar. Monaco's Robert Bound sat down with Sugimoto at the opening of the new show. Let's have a listen. Sugimoto-san, congratulations on this wonderful show here at the Hayward. When you see your career's work, or at least the photographic side of your work, laid out in front of you by yourself and by the curators here, how does that feel when you see your whole body of work rather than just looking at what you're doing now and next, I wonder? Well, I feel like I'm the, the last photographer before digital photography. And I'm very happy to be active in this, uh, well, photography was invented 1839. And negative positive method was, well, invented here by Fox Talbot in England. Since it's been almost 180-some years, the photography, the type of photography, I think, is over. Now digital, everything is digitalized. So to me, it's totally different medium. It's more like a close to the painting. You know, you can photograph anything you want and you can change anything you want according to your idea. And so painting, you, you paint your imagination. Now photographer, photograph your imagination. The important thing is the police department decided not to take photography as evidence. That's the end of the photography. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think some of you, you've got into a few scrapes, I understand, with some of those American abandoned theatres as well, talking about the police department. You've been known for kind of bringing dead things back to life or bringing abandoned things back to life. And people walking around this show will, will see evidence of that. Does that come from somewhere deep inside you or was that a happy accident at the beginning of your career, I wonder? Well, no, I decided to be a contemporary artist before I became a photographer. And so when I started in 1970s, conceptualism, minimalism was taking over the art world. So uh, not just a straight photographer. Well, I, I'm very well trained as a photographer already. I moved to New York in 1975, and I encountered very fascinating scenes of contemporary art. So uh, intentionally, I decided to be a part of the contemporary art artist group to be joined. And, well, I can be a conceptual artist, but uh, what should I do? The painting has been done many times. It's, it's done. And, but the photography being considered as a second-class citizen of the art world. So well, why not bring this photography to be as a part of the, the high-level art? That I, I ask myself, this is my mission. So as a conceptual artist, I try to make uh, what that animals be back to the life. This is quite conceptual, you know. If you look at my polar bear, if you think this is real, it's something wrong with your eye, something wrong with your brain, then that's questions. What our perception? What's the nature of human perception? This is the study, starting point. And I kept doing it for till now, asking the human perception, what people seeing and believing it, and what's behind it, what's the reality behind it, and what's the meaning behind it, yes. And, and in terms of human perception and what we see, what we think we see, what we want to see perhaps in some of, some of your work as well, your seascapes are very well known. And I was lucky enough to go to Odawara, to the Inura Art Observatory, your wonderful place uh, near Hakone last year. That is a beautiful seascape, looking across the, the part that you've, uh, you've made your own there. Out of that, there's a wonderful room upstairs with, with, with many seascapes in it. What's the one that, is the, that to you is the apple of your eye, Sukimoto-san? Because they are on a sliding scale of abstraction, aren't they? Well, I've been photographing seascapes over like three decades. But now I start seeing something changing. I cannot see anymore the kind of primordial kind of scene of seascapes. Even I go back to the same spot, there's a razor boat and hotels and so I cannot find any more untouched, almost untouched nature as a sea. So well, only one chance now I have is I establish my own foundation facing uh, the Pacific Ocean. And there's so many fishing boats around every day. Only one day, January 1st, nobody's out. <laughs> <laughs> That's your opportunity. So I have once every year, one day, 
able to photograph the seascapes of without human activities. Beautiful. And just finally, we know that your practice extends to architecture and, and, and the built environment as well. You've touched on the relationship with your work and the Hayward Gallery here, but how do you judge the, the coming together of your work and the architecture of this very well-known building, at least in London? Well, this is a quite a unique design, as you know. It's not fancy at all, intentionally, and no decoration. So this is, this is the best for my show, the space itself, and beautiful uh, natural light, and then pitch dark room with my uh, special lighting. And so well, this is uh, the best uh, well, show I can imagine. And space-wise, I'm very happy. And this is my first time to see myself, my, my survey, my career, what I've been doing. And, well, I'm convinced myself. I'm pleased myself, my life. So it's something a bit, bit like turning the camera on yourself. It's a bit of a self-portrait we're looking at. Huh? Self-portrait? Perhaps this show. Uh -huh. Yeah, this is my self-portrait. <laughs> yes. This is uh, retrospective, probably. So, well, I'm very happy myself so that I'm ready to die. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. I'm Carlotta Rabello. There is something about the first long dark nights of winter that make us crave things that sparkle. It's perhaps for that reason that the team behind Confect Corner gravitated towards the theme of adornment in the latest episode. Confect's editor, Sophie Grove, convened a roundtable to discuss the power of jewellery. She was joined by the jewellery historian Daniela Maschetti and by the independent jewellery artist Emefa Cole. She started by asking Daniela, why do we as humans wear jewellery? I think it is just human instinct from prehistoric time. Men and women felt the desire to adorn the body with something. Was it feathers? Was it bones? Drilled shells? Drilled stones? And it was from the very beginning a combination of natural desire to lock more beautiful, but also jewels straight away from the very beginning became a way of displaying your status within your circle of people. Later on, also a mean of displaying your wealth. So obviously jewels beautify a woman or a man, why not, and help this person to project the status so it's something that has been with us since time immemorial, and I don't see jewelry disappearing from um, our drawers of our safes or our caskets. The idea of instinct, Emma that we're drawn to jewels as creatures, is very interesting to me. Why do you think we have this instinct, and how do you relate to that as a designer? That is very true. You know, we're drawn to shiny things. And even as Daniela said, when it was feathers and bones, it's just anything that would enhance your beauty to draw attention to you, regardless of the materials. Obviously, over time, it's become a lot more luxurious. We've moved on from bones and feathers and you have gold, you have diamonds and rubies and emeralds and all of the very, very high-value, precious materials. In terms of how it relates to me as a designer, 
I just want to create beautiful things. And of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So my pieces wouldn't necessarily be beautiful to everybody, but to the people who do find it beautiful and who are bold enough to wear them, they are very bold pieces. Um, so they're not for everybody. Then if it brings joy to the person, to the wearer, that makes me happy. I mean, I'm interested in this idea of the projection of wealth, but also the very intimate, almost spiritual value that jewellery has and has had throughout history. Has this sort of oscillated? What we've seen even recently, I think women I speak to wear jewellery in a very discreet way for themselves. It's about identity, but it's not necessarily to show off. Daniela, how do you think that has been shifting and changing and oscillating through history? And where do you think we are right now? Jewelry as fashion is just a result of what's happening in a bigger sort of social scenario. Jewels had to be worn at the end of the 19th century in great abundance by the wealthy elite, simply because everybody had to outdo their friends. And women were literally the business card of their husbands. So the more diamonds they plastered on the wives, the more obvious their wealth was. I mean, it was so typical of the Gilded Age, and that was perhaps the peak of jewels. After that, it was just a gentle decline. Two wars did not help to encourage people to wear jewels, but it all came to an end with the 1960s and the political problems, sort of turmoil. Jewels in the 60s became suddenly not fashionable and actually problematic to wear them. You would not look good even within a certain set of society if you were wearing it. That's when a lot of jewelers started to diversify and become more creative with less precious and intrinsically valuable materials. So it is just up and down that goes with the political and social history. It is true that today we were so much less jewels than we did in the past. But even amongst middle and even lower middle class in the old days, you know, wearing a little brooch, wearing a couple of rings was the thing to do. I remember my grandmother would not have gone out of the house without a brooch pinned on her coat. I mean, would anybody go with a pin on the coat down Oxford Street? You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be clever if the brooch was precious and it wouldn't be socially wise to do so. And finally, we round off our weekly highlights in Austria. Much to everybody's surprise, a progressive non-binary choir called Schmusikor is making waves in conservative Austria. They are performing in villages and small towns across the country, while also maintaining a noticeable presence in Vienna. Monaco's Alexei Korolyov spoke to the founder of the choir to find out what life is like outside the capital for unorthodox touring musicians. So my name is Verena Giesinger and I am the founder, leader and conductor of Schmusikor. It wasn't really my plan to found it uh, in the year 2014 
I just wanted to sing in a choir myself and I didn't quite find one that I thought was fitting to me or what I was looking forward to. I thought I would just start singing with my friends in my bedroom at that time. It was really like in a shared flat. I was just with four or five people starting and rumors spread really quickly that there is something new happening. I think that was actually the moment when Schmusikor became Schmusikor. And within a few months, there were more and more people coming. We had to move into an art studio and started rehearsing there. And in 2015, we sang our first concert in Austria and it just exploded. And we are now up to 45 voices doing concerts all over Austria and also now in Italy. Lavinia Lana, a Vienna-based visual artist, is one of those voices. I come from a, a music background, like I used to sing in the family and also was part of a choir. So I did some research and waited for this open call of Schmusikor seven years ago and luckily I was chosen. What did you have to sing? What did you have to do in the audition? Um, they didn't tell us what we should prepare, so I was quite nervous, I would say. And then uh, as soon as I entered the room with all the other uh, singers and applicants, it was clear that this was already at that time a, a safe space where um, you didn't have to worry about anything. And we uh, sang Natural Woman, the song that we still have in our program right now. Uh, and I still love to sing it, even after seven years. So we only do pop songs that we really like. <laughs> Back to Schmusikor leader Verena Giesinger. It's actually only songs that I also like to listen to at home or we have some biography with it, like Backstreet Boys, for example. It's not something I would listen to nowadays at home anymore, but I grew up with. It was like one of the first uh, pop bands I actually saw live because my brother was uh, the band that was playing before Backstreet Boys. He was... What? opening a Backstreet Boys. Wow. I wasn't aware of it at the time because I was too young. I was a bigger fan of my brother than mm. I was of Backstreet Boys. <laughs> With its colourful costumes and its repertoire of pop classics like I Want It That Way, the choir was bound to become a success in major cities, especially in liberal Vienna. But what about the rest of the country? People in the Austrian countryside can be notoriously conservative. What do they think of this queer feminist choir singing decidedly foreign songs? Verena Giesinger. It happened to us very often that we went to the countryside. The last time I remember it was in a very small town in Upper Austria and we were invited to sing in a church. And we like to sing in churches because the acoustics are amazing and I think it's a space that I would really like to re-own and take those amazing architectural spaces back. And we went to this village with our costumes. At the time, they were very um, pompous, like very big and colorful. And we always play with those typical gender roles and we bend them and we see that everybody feels the way they want to feel and maybe get a bit empowered by the costumes. So 
we went there very self-confident and felt like in the best version of ourselves and entered this small village. And in the beginning, I didn't notice how many weird glances we get. Like people looked at us and were quite skeptical. They were watching us and they uh, were not uh, really agreeing with what we looked like. But in the concert itself, it usually always happens that we get everyone to love us till the end. Mm -hmm. You can feel it for the first two, three, four songs that they're skeptical, but usually latest when I start speaking to them, actually. <laughs> and they're like, mm, okay, maybe they're not so weird as I thought. Mm -hmm. So the concert turned out to be super nice and very beautiful. But afterwards, we went to one of those typical restaurants in Austria, you know, that are like really... Yeah, yeah, guest house. Guest house. <laughs> they're so conservative. When I entered this uh, guest house, there was an older guy coming out and he said like, yeah, I really like the way you were singing and performing, but why? And he was like really aggressive. Why do you have to dress like this? I feel like, okay, these are actually the places that need Schmusekor and they need to see us and they need to listen to us. And if they manage to like us in the end of a one hour, two hour concerts, then I think we did our job very well. For Monaco in Vienna, I am Alexei Korolev. Well, and that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam MP and presented by me, Carlotta Rebello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle Radio. Thanks for listening and have a great week. <laughs>